You sound outraged already. <laughs> I feel like I'm some <laughs> madman walking around my house ranting. <laughs> Welcome to this trial run of a new kind of BMJ podcast we want to do. Here we're going to be focusing on all things EBM. We care about it and we figure that you care about it too if you're listening to the podcast and are a reader of the BMJ. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and I make these podcasts. And to talk about these evidence-based things, I'm joined by two of the biggest EBM nerds I know, Helen McDonald and Carl Hennigan. Helen, why do you go and uh, introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Helen McDonald. I'm Head of Education at BMJ and um, I'm an EBM nerd. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and I'm also Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And Director for the Centre of Evidence-Based Correct. Medicine. So all of your EBM credentials there. So what we have here are a few things that we're going to talk through. Now, the exact makeup of this will change over the coming months as we do more of these and we work out what you like and what you don't like. Um, but the important thing is we're planning to do it regularly. Uh, if you want to get in touch and tell us what works and what doesn't, um, go to bmj.com slash podcasts and you'll find all the details there. We're going to go through and take some things to talk about to help you with your practice. Um, some things that maybe the evidence says you should start doing and some things that the evidence says you should stop doing. The first on this list was vitamin D. And Carl, it was you that wanted to talk about this. Yeah, no, this was really interesting. I mean, vitamin D is one of them that's been in the sort of air for many years. It's promised land of vitamin D <laughs> is whether it will reduce respiratory infections. But it's I particularly, as a general practitioner, have had lots of guidance to say vitamin D in the elderly is the choice to reduce fractures and falls. And in fact, even in 2016, Public Health England issued guidance that the general population should take a daily supplement containing, containing 10 milligrams of vitamin D. Well, this systematic review of 81 trials says you can keep your money, you can keep it in your pocket, and as a practitioner, I would say this quality systematic review says don't recommend vitamin D supplements. How can you be so sure? Well, oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, evidence is there to reduce uncertainty, isn't it? You can never be quite sure. But look, there are 81 trials, over 50,000 people. And I, I've never quite seen this before. If you, if, if you go to the paper in the figures, you can actually see the figure which says fracture. The, all the studies, 36 of the studies looked at fracture and the relative risk is one for reduction of fracture. What does that mean then? So it means it doesn't make any difference whatsoever <laughs> to reducing your risk of fractures. So if you like vitamin D and you want to waste your money, then fine. But I won't be recommending any more that it reduces your risk of fracture. And this is interesting because I think this happens a lot actually, is when you read in the discussion of this but paper it says future trials are unlikely to alter the results mm. um 
many of the small studies, the early studies, were positive, and that's what sways our opinion. And as the studies get larger, obviously sometimes better quality, then actually the effect size disappears. And I think that's quite interesting, them making a very definitive statement that future trials will not alter this effect. So we should just stop doing it? I think this is a clear one, actually. I think uh, apart from the at-risk groups, those who basically uh, lack uh, sunlight in, and are at high risk of rickets or osteomalacia, but that's actually a very low vitamin D level. But I think, you know, we see in the elderly with comorbidity, they have a whole range of treatments and drugs to take. Mm. And so by being able to remove one, I think is a good is a good piece of advice and I think we shouldn't be prescribing it we shouldn't be recommending it fine if people want to carry on that's fine but if you're saying it's for fractures or falls then this evidence suggests that will be misleading Uh, so this is evidence that it's not very effective does this say anything about harms at all because obviously we have to care about that too no, um, there, there doesn't seem to be any harms of taking vitamin D because and it, it, even in the high-dose trials, there were no harms. But also, interestingly, even the high-dose didn't seem to have a clinically meaningful benefit. And so um, I think if you want to take it, you know, all sorts of people might take a supplement as a placebo. But actually, I wouldn't now, as a practitioner, recommend this to my patient group. So, Helen, you've got quite a big job to follow there. Do you have some clear advice um, for people about what they should start or perhaps stop doing? I do. I wanted uh, to bring to everyone's attention um, the latest Rapid Recommendations article that we published, and it's on the use of oxygen in medical inpatients. Um, And I just have to declare a small conflict of interest that I am that series uh, editor. So obviously I thought this was a good topic. Um, But we basically know that giving oxygen to people in hospital is just part part of the course really of being um, in hospital and this is about giving oxygen to people who aren't breathless but who um, who, who might be there for, for some other reason and there was a meta-analysis systematic review of meta-analysis that was published in the Lancet earlier this year and that showed an increased risk of death um, in people uh, given oxygen uh, particularly when their oxygen saturations went over 96 percent but it can be sometimes quite difficult to to know what to do with that information in in real life and that's why uh, we kicked off this rapid rapid recommendation process to try and translate that um, into a a useful clinical question so we basically asked um, for acutely ill patients when should oxygen treatment be started and uh, for people who are then taking oxygen treatment, when should it be stopped? So that was the Can idea. Just, editor of what series? Rapid what? Rapid recommendation. Rapid recommendation. <laughs> What's that? Well, <laughs> it's funny you should ask, Carl. Um, <laughs> well, that's uh, why I asked it. Um, so rapid recommendations, the idea is that it can take a long time for evidence to filter down into practice. And sometimes that can be because um, evidence is quite difficult to understand when it comes out in a meta-analysis. Sometimes there are other complexities um, to consider. So maybe the uh, treatment is quite difficult for patients to take or for doctors to provide. So there might be some stuff around their values and preferences. There might be stuff around resources and how healthcare is set up. Um, so it's trying to look at the evidence but add in those other two important 
pillars of EBM, um, clinical experience and patient values and preferences and general life practicality. And doing that in a way that is timely and doing it in a way that is trustworthy. Um, And in particular, making sure that um, you have a full spectrum of people involved in the care of such patients, including the patients themselves uh, around the table. Can I just, I mean, to some people I work with, not naming any names, rapid is like about a year's time. A rapid recommendation, how long does that take you from we choose this topic to producing the final answer published in the BMJ? (laughs) Well, um, our dream is to do it in three months from the evidence being published to us um, publishing the recommendation. We haven't managed that, I don't think. Um, But we've been a lot more rapid than other organisations. So for this one, the systematic... Um, sorry, for this one, the systematic review and meta-analysis was published in April this year. Um, I can't remember exactly when we decided to cover it and kicked off our process, but we're now at the end of October. So that's what, around six months. Okay, six months are rapid. Watch this space. It could be shorter in the future, you're saying. (laughs) Now, uh, oxygen is really interesting. I use oxygen a lot to teach about, actually, and I teach it for medical students. And it's such an interesting topic because, and this is going back, I'm getting old now, oxygen was a drug of choice for heart attack, Mm -hmm. for all medical conditions. Oxygen was a lifesaver. And I've wrote previously about its impact in heart attack. And then there was a large UK trial that said in stroke, it doesn't make any difference. And it's one of them where you can, particularly the new students coming in who are sort of fresh faced uh, you can sort of pop a slide and say if a patient has x would you give them oxygen yes no uncertain mm-hmm. and basic mechanism suggests oxygen's a good idea but yet this is saying don't do it it is yeah it is well it's using the evidence predominantly to say don't do it but there are some mechanistic reasons why it might be a mm. bad idea so if you look at what they recommend they make three recommendations so in terms of when to start, they only make recommendations for the population you were talking about, Carl, people with uh, MI and also people with stroke. And they make a strong recommendation not to start supplementary oxygen unless the oxygenation, unless the oxygen saturation is below 92%. Yeah. Um, and they make a weak recommendation because there was very limited f- evidence um, below 92% not to start um, until it was below 90%. But that is a lot more uncertain than the 92% um, threshold. Um, so they said, don't bother putting it on uh, until until you hit that, those numbers. And then for anybody, um, people with other medical problems as well, um, so they, maybe they were in with um, sepsis or, or something different, um, do not give people supplemental oxygen um, above a level of 96%. So at that point in time, you either want to take your oxygen off or you want to uh, titrate it down so that it's keeping it in an acceptable range. So pragmatically, you end up with a target range of around sort of 90 to 94% as your aim. But you said something which... When I think about this, you said strong versus weak. Yes. And I often think about, well, my strength at the gym is getting, (laughs) I'm getting weaker. What do you mean? So if it's weak, what, that's like weak tea, like weak strength, throw it in the bin. Why would you go with that recommendation? Yes, strong weak recommendations. Well, so this this comes down to the the methodology that the um, series uh, 
authors use. So they use a methodology called GRADE, which is quite well known in the world of EBM. And in that methodology, you can either come out with a strong or a weak recommendation, and that can be driven by uh, different factors. Um, typically, in, in the ones that we have done, it's been driven either by the strength of the evidence um, and or the um, values and preferences of patients. So in this situation, um, there were areas where the evidence was quite clear and patients agreed with the evidence. They thought that there would be very little variability um, in what patients uh, would value in that situation. So uh, for example, for the 96% threshold, uh, there was very little doubt that most patients would value avoiding death. So the fact that the evidence is strong and the fact that people don't seem to vary in their interpretation of it or their, their opinion on it means that we can make a strong recommendation. Whereas the weak recommendation at the opposite end, the 90 to 92% is driven by the fact that the evidence um, was very limited because there were only very few people that had a saturation level that low in the trials. So that's interesting. I just think people who do research in these big topics for these big questions and reduce uncertainty are amazing and give us great teaching aids but also make us think about many of the things we do in medicine particularly are uncertain aren't they yes. and and these big issues mm. there are still i'm left with what next for oxygen because mm. i think people might start to look at some of these other people like where they've got lower saturations and consider doing the trials in that group yeah that's something that the authors certainly advocate um looking at the particularly the bottom end of the saturation and saying sort of how how low should we how go? low can you how go low can you go before <laughs> you put the oxygen on um very interesting yeah and we did an interesting podcast chat with one of the authors of that article and if you've got anything to do with ebm you've probably heard of him before his take on weak recommendations there I thought was very interesting because he was, well, kind of all in for it. Um, why don't we just let Gordon tell you? Um, I'm, I, I'm in the camp that uh, I will have no hesitation not giving oxygen to my patients over 90%, but others might be more hesitant in that 90 to 92 range. So guys, as people who look at evidence um, and actually do practice as well, how do you think about weak evidence? Um, how do you kind of translate that from the page uh, into what you actually do with patients? Well, I think this is interesting because this is about saying you've got a, an effect that is no effect there. And one of the things about healthcare is there's only so much resources we've got. And actually, we have to root out low value treatments. So the fact is, if it's not making any difference, why would you go and use it? And all you can do is remember is use the evidence to inform the decision. Now, is whether that's strong or weak, that's the evidence you have to hand today. Mm. And be mindful that it might change in the future. Mm. But there is a position that you have to say, is, this is the evidence to inform what we're doing right now. And I think it's really difficult to do that because it's difficult to keep up today. And you don't know what new evidence is coming. And I think the amount of evidence that's produced now, it's really difficult to hone in and say, what should you do? But I think this is a good example you know, if you're not going to listen to this evidence and dismiss it because it's weak, you're probably going to end up dismissing all evidence, to be honest. 
the key is keep your eye out for what's next what's emerging in the field of oxygen and keep listening to this podcast oh definitely and hopefully we can give you some of that information too i think the weak recommendations i until i started this process of rapid recommendations had always felt quite intimidated by those options but actually um thinking about how you phrase them in a conversation with a patient i think has been useful so a way that I have heard um, Gordon and his colleagues phrase it are that both options are reasonable. And I think that um, aside from the resource issues you mentioned, Carl, about about wasting information, I think when you're sitting with a patient in front of you and you're trying to make a choice about what to do, for me, I think when the evidence is uncertain, it's about sharing the fact that a lot of the options on the table are reasonable. And so the things that matter to the patient are um, perhaps even more important when you don't have um, any clear information to guide them as to what might improve their length of life or quality of life. Thanks. So there are two things that you should stop doing. Maybe next month we'll be telling you about what you should start doing. But before then, let's move on to our next section. So next, I think Carl had... um, a couple of news items to tell us about. In fact, you used a terrible term. You said meta-analysis, and I was left there thinking, I wonder if everybody out there does know that common term. I'm going to add in another word, which is cumulative meta-analysis. Oh, I hope you would explain that, actually. Well, I was hoping you'd explain meta-analysis, but you missed out on that. Um, Systematic reviews have a component when you summarise the evidence called meta-analysis, which is you are taking all the individual results and pooling them together to give you an overall result. And there are software packages to do that. Cumulative meta-analysis is a really interesting concept. Instead of just providing the overall pooled result, what you do is you provide the first trial. When you do the second study, you provide what's called the cumulative result at each stage. So by the third Mm. study, you add in a third study. Fourth study, you get a result. And so what you can see is the effect emerge. And this was done in the 90s by a chap called Antman and a whole bunch of colleagues who showed it was really useful to show that actually if you use this system, you'd be able to come to effects quicker than if you just waited looking at the individual trials and then your six months you did your rapid recommendation. And so um, we didn't actually do a cumulative meta-analysis. We picked out um, one that was done in 2015 by a chap called Tanashima, performed a systematic review of 59 cohort studies of sodium valproate. Now, sodium valproate's in the news because it's increased risk of congenital malformations in women who take it in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, that's been known for some time. However, it's just come to recently that in the last few years, the European Medicines Agency has started to produce advice to say... Women should be switched, women shouldn't be offered this treatment in pregnancy and should go to lower risk treatments. And there's some controversy about that because there was an analysis piece in the BMJ said we disagree with that. But I think the key here is evidence is really important to be able to give to people and allow them to make informed choices. And I think there's a lot of women out there who are basically saying I never had this ability to be informed about the choice. And what's interesting is what we wanted to know is when did we know what and when about congenital malformations? And it's really interesting if you look at the figure in this paper. What it basically tells you is that the first trial was done in 1983 with just 48 participants. 
The last cohort study was done in 2014, and there were by then there were 20,677 participants. But if you follow it through, we picked out in 1990, when you had 846 participants, you could clearly show the cumulative risk ratio had reached statistical significance after eight studies had been combined. So we, the evidence was pretty was clear then that actually this treatment increased your risk of congenital malformations. So we should have been doing something then. But it's actually so is that just establishing that we're confident there is harm, but since then it's been fine-tuning the magnitude of that harm, or what's the... Well, it's really interesting. So what the risk ratio was then was 2.53, so about two and a half times, and it was significant. But what they've done is the further studies basically decrease the confidence intervals. So increase your certainty about the effect estimate and carries on and on and on. So basically, some 20 years later, you more or less get the same effect estimate, 2.34, and the confidence intervals are somewhere between 2.13 and 2.8. So the true effect estimate lies between them two. But Mm. all of that evidence has basically just backed up what we knew in 1990. Mm. The question is, we've carried on using this treatment, we've carried on putting women at harm, and cumulative meta-analysis and what we we say in this piece is that it should be standard when you're concerned about harms and this goes to your rapid recommendation type idea is we can't wait in a year or two so somebody does a systematic review in another two years so these somehow need to become updated on a regular basis or become living yeah so that's a really interesting maybe a living systematic review that's an interesting concept that's well what so one of our rapid recommendations ones is now living i believe virtually Oh, interesting. On yes, so that's the one on knee arthroscopy. Oh, interesting. Um, for degenerative uh, knee disease or osteoarthritis of the knee, and the idea is exactly that: that you have the systematic review there, and if and when another trial comes out, you would just add it on. The result would adjust, and if you need to adjust any text or conclusions around that then you would well what we're saying is it'd be useful to provide the cumulative meta-analysis so people could see as you flow down what's happening to that effect estimate we consider um it's not a question of does valproate increase your risk of genital malcomations that's that's established Mm. in the uk there is a review that was ordered by the previous health secretary jeremy hunt to look into free treatments valproate's one of them mesh in transvaginal prolapse and surgical incontinence and hormone pregnancy tests Mm -hmm. are all being looked into because patient groups are saying we've been let down by the system by the evidence and i think what what the major bit is of all of this i've learned is it's all about producing the evidence to make informed decisions and it's pretty clear to me that in the past we've been poor at this and where's, where have we fallen down? Is it that the evidence wasn't put together or that people didn't act on it? What do you think the I think are? it's a bit of everything. I think, um, I think everybody is a bit culpable in the whole system here, whether it's how the evidence is produced mm. and published, how it's incorporated in guidelines, how we use it, how we use that to inform the public, mm. and particularly here women who are pregnant. All of that has been failings. And I think, I think we have a problem in medicine is... Is, is like the airline industry. Safety is really important. You know, if mm. suddenly a plane's drop out of the sky, that would affect their business model. 
and I'd be one of them people who'd stop getting on a plane if they dropped out of the sky and they're over the Atlantic. But so they take safety really seriously. I don't think we take safety very seriously in medicine. Mm -hmm. And there have been loads of instances where you look at it and go, you know, we could have been a bit better about patient safety here. And I think we have to take a more robust response. And at the moment, I think we're pretty weak in our approach. We're going to be coming back to various themes as we go through this series of podcasts. Um, And I'm sure safety will be one of those that comes up again and again and again and again. So, Carl, you're obviously exacerbated by um, some things there. And I think that's something that we want to get across in this podcast too. So each month, I'm going to ask you, both of you, um, what you've seen that felt ridiculous, that's perhaps annoyed you, uh, or maybe delighted you. Uh, it doesn't all have to be bad. Um, but something that's really kind of struck you. Stuck you sound outraged already. <laughs> I feel like I'm some <laughs> madman walking around my house ranting. <laughs> uh, ab- there was a piece which I knew about this piece coming out. I've been aware of it. But Nigel Hawke's headline was shocking number of clinical trials and never reported safe MPs. Well, I, that was tried to pull you in. And I thought, well, I know this. Half of all trials are never reported. Yeah, we sort of know this and it's a big issue. But I actually went. This was a report by the House of Commons Science and Technology Committee which they had a report on research integrity, clinical trials transparency. And one of the things that defines you as a nerd is that you go and read these reports. The full report. The full report. Not it's not the too bad. summary. <laughs> it's 28 pages in length. You know, a few references. But you actually read it. Now, one of the things is on page seven is that just it, it made me angry to the point where I was like boiling over. Listen to this. In 2013, the Health Research Authority, they're the people who are supposed to oversee trials and what we do, made it a condition of a trial receiving a favourable opinion from a research ethics committee that the trial must be registered or a deferral for specific reasons requested. So that means when you go for your ethics approval, it's got to be on a trial register. I thought that was a done deal. Everybody knows that when you're doing a clinical trial. The HRA's 2017 audit... the HRA? The HRA, the Health Research Authority, sorry about that, is audit. So they went and looked to reveal that 32% of 599 studies that received a favourable opinion could not be found on a publicly accessible registry. So that means they've said you have to, at the time of ethical approval, have registration. Yeah. Yet one third of all trials don't have that approval. Now, if that doesn't tell you there's a major problem in the world with trials and transparency and regulations, what will do? And here's what's happening in the UK government. This should be a global phenomenon, is that this needs sorting right now. Final word. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, is um, they're basically recommending they're recommending that the Health Research Authority actually takes this serious, comes up with a plan and says all trials have to be registered and 100% of trials done in the UK have to be published in full within one year, which is in line with European Union legislation and in America it's the same rules. And that's quite interesting because this also interests me and this does also make me angry in a way that I've got gritted teeth, is... um, a lot of people, and I'm one of them, go around bashing the industry. 
But actually, when you look at trial transparency, and I know the person who does this, sorry about this conflict of interest, this is Ben Goldacre, who runs a trial tracker in the department I work in, basically says, you know what, industry are a lot better than actually universities in terms of registering and publishing their trials in full. Uh, the figures go that commercial trials are about 68% publish their results on a public accessible registry. Universities is as low as 1 in 10 nearly. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's, uh, we don't take it seriously. I think mm. it's, we're not considering that when we do a trial, we're doing it from reasons of uncertainty. We're also doing it to answer a specific question. And then most people go off and try and get it published in a journal and don't think about their public duty to make it accessible on the registry so that people could look it up, reviewers can access the results. But I also think it's quite shocking because universities are responsible for training everybody, the PhDs of the world in trials. Mm. And if we set a standard that says in some universities it's low as 6% are on a public accessible registry, what message are we sending to the world that we are high-quality trials are delivered in the UK? And I think this is an issue that has to be sorted, and it has to be sorted because it can be with a very simple procedures of audits that can monitor what's going on in the UK. I've got a question, which is, how does that work? How does ethical approval come about? Um, and who is it that regulates what ethics committees do and kind of stops them going rogue or introduces new things? I think at this point, uh, you're going to have to phone a friend because I'm outside <laughs> of my depth here. We need question. to phone an ethicist. You need to phone an ethicist because I do not know the answer to that. You would think there was some overarching body. I presume it's the health research authorities. Yeah. At this point, I went and called, not an ethicist, but the policy director for the Health Research Authority, Juliet Tizard. Hi, Duncan. Hi, Juliet. It might be helpful to explain a bit how our regulatory system works. We have made it a condition of research ethics committee favourable opinion um, that the clinical trial that they're reviewing um, goes on to register that, um, that study um, publicly within six weeks of the first patient or first participant being recruited. So when the Ethics Committee review that study, they're doing it and giving the opinion on the basis that the researcher or the applicant will do what they have said they will do in order to obtain that favourable opinion. So um, the issue that we have is that, um, as you said, around um, 30% of those who are supposed to be registering, uh, as far as our audit tells us, aren't in fact doing that. They aren't filling their ethical requirements, are they? That's right. They're, they're effectively in breach of their ethical approval. And when we've done um, research into the reasons why that's happening, um, a surprising number of um, researchers are reporting that they're unaware of the requirements or they're not prioritizing the need to register their trial or indeed publish the results. Um, so there's there's a there's a there's a job for us to do to make sure that we're making clear what their requirements are. But I think there's obviously nothing like um, increasing the pressure on on, on um, researchers to make sure that they improve their performance in this area and that's what we need to do now I think. Mm. And how are you planning to do that? Well, the, um, the Science and Technology Committee has set us a challenge 
to uh, move away from being um, more of a kind of carrot kind of organize, uh, regulator than a stick kind of regulator and to take a more robust approach to this. So um, what um, what we need to look at doing and they've set us the challenge of looking at doing is, is investing much more resources in following up on those studies. So you mentioned that we, we do a, a periodic audit of compliance with um, the requirement to register trials. Um, that's a snapshot audit. Uh, we don't look at all of the studies. So um, they've asked us to cost up how much it will be to have a monitoring function of all research that we, uh, all clinical trials that we review um, and make a bid to government um, to, uh, as to further for resourcing that and, and potentially increasing our powers, although we're not sure we need to increase, increase our powers in that area. Um, so that's the challenge they've set us and to really sort of um, follow up much more rigorously on a researcher's intention to check that they have actually done what they said they were going to do and to, and to um, and make sure that we apply much more pressure uh, and potentially look at withdrawing ethical approval or, um, or indeed asking for evidence before we give ethical approval that they've actually registered their research. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next year. Thank you. And so for people listening to this, um, if they've got opinions on the, the role that the, the HRA should take um, going forward, so maybe about you know being more of a stick than a carrot, um, are there ways for mm. people to, to feed that in at the moment? Not yet, but they will have that opportunity. Um, so at the moment, we're, um, we're producing our response to uh, the recommendations that the Science and Technology Committee have made to us. And then in the new year, we'll be um, publishing plans for how we're going to go about um, developing. Um, they've asked us to develop a, a strategy in this area and to lay out what exactly we're going to do to improve performance around research transparency. Uh, and so in the new year, we'll be publishing um, uh, an opportunity for people to get involved in that. So we want to make sure that Obviously, we want to take people in the research community with us as much as possible in developing those plans, but also we want to make sure that we test them for feasibility, that we're targeting the right areas of the research community, and that what we do is going to be effective. Um, so we'll, we'll make public when people can get involved in that process. We'd really welcome it. Who is it that regulates ethics committees? Who is it that stops them, you know, orders what they're doing and stops Good. them going rogue and, and you know, granting... Uh, yeah. Favorable approval to 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 any old. <laughs> yes. So it well it depends on it's slightly different depending on which type of study. The current legislation around clinical trials, so that's drug trials, has certain um, in, instructions to research ethics committees. So they're locked in by legislation. Um, clinical trials of medical devices or surgical techniques. Um, and that's where that, th those wider set of trials are the ones where there's an ethical requirement to register. So we, by law, um, appoint, convene, coordinate and allocate work to all of the research ethics committees in England. And we also have a duty to provide them with guidance on, on what we think they should be looking at. Obviously, ethical review is, is not something that we can 
mandate. We can't tell ethics committees exactly what opinion they should have on each study they review. That's the, the point of ethical review is to give an opinion to the researcher. But nonetheless, the research community deserves some consistency of approach and they, they need to know what exactly the research committee is going to be, the ethics committee is going to be looking at and, and how they will consider and balance up um, the things that the um, uh, that the researcher kind of puts in their application. So it's kind of it's a they're providing an independent ethical review, but they're doing so under our guidance as a regulator. So our last bit of evidence this week is about something that maybe other students who are listening out there care about, or maybe even the hardworking doctors after a long day seeing patients. Helen, you said that the evidence says we shouldn't be drinking at all. Not only that, she was calling for alcohol to become, become a drug as your editor's choice. No, I'd, I'd like to defend my <laughs> position on this. Are we going to be prescribing what? it? I, I am an editor and I, I'm very interested in how words are used. And I was very interested in, in the piece um, written by Cipros Kipri and Jim McCambridge arguing about the way that we use words and the way that we categorize words around alcohol policy um is very important um so and and to me it kind of resonated with conversations that i have um in clinical practice so i thought about how did i learn to take uh history about drugs and alcohol and smoking and it was all kind of separated out you asked about drugs and alcohol and smoking and the thing that i uh, was attracted to in, in in their argument was that drugs, alcohol and well smoking, so nicotine, are all drugs um, and that that in some way we're kind of sanitizing conversations and maybe policy around these things by separating them out and not just calling them what they are, which are drugs and just asking what drugs people use, options which might include nicotine alcohol or ethanol I suppose if you wanted to get very technical um, and uh, other recreational drugs so that uh, that was my only point <laughs> I feel like uh, we we'd have to defer to Jeff Aronson on what's in a word here on what yeah. defines a drug that might be quite interesting I mean it did prompt me actually to go and read some of this stuff because it was basically saying do you know what you should go down to zero alcohol which I guess for many people out there, including myself, would be a difficult choice. But actually what was interesting is looking at the evidence of where the legal limits are. And actually around the world there's quite a difference, isn't there? I didn't realise the difference that, for instance, the US recommendations are twice that of the UK. Mm-hmm. And in Spain and Italy, they're 50% more again. And presumably we're all using the same evidence. Yeah, and we're all using <laughs> the same evidence. So where are you are is somewhere between 100 grams, which is about six pints of beer, up to about 250 grams, which is about 13, 14 pints of beer. So there's a huge difference. But it looked to me that actually, once you get above that 200 gram limit, you start to get into into trouble, actually. And, and, and actually, I'm not sure, ju- the, the zero seems to me... If nobody's got a true about the negative effects of that. But actually, the UK recommendation is 100 grams. And if you're in the above 100 grams, it said in this threshold for alcohol consumption in, in an individual analysis of lots of people around the world, that actually your life expectancy will go down by about six months once you're above 100 units, 100 grams to 200 grams. And then, but really interesting, this is a bit, if you're a heavy drinker, 
it seriously is bad news. And 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 I think the analogies are trying to say is alcohol is like smoking in terms of nearly the same amount of life years lost. And we're seeing alcohol and liver disease as the only chronic disease really on the rise, where all the others, we're managing them. We have a problem with alcohol, I think. And I particularly notice this. I don't know when you notice this. If you go down the aisle in your next supermarket, the, the alcohol aisles are generally bigger than the fruit and vegetable aisles in terms of the amount you can buy. And it seems to me in the shops, they're incredibly cheap as well. And so some countries are looking at limits on the cost, and I think that should be explored because it seems to me outside in the shops, it's readily available and very cheap. And a lot of people are what you consider, they consider themselves as moderate drinkers, but are in this two to 300 gram category, which is actually pretty dangerous for you. So that's our first EBM roundup. We want to make evidence accessible. Just because it's nerdy doesn't mean it's boring. And we hope that you've enjoyed that. (laughs) Let us know. You can tweet us or Facebook us or else email me. Find all those details um, on bmj.com slash podcasts. There you'll also find our fullback catalogue. Hundreds of episodes, all available for free. You can also find out how to subscribe if you've not done so yet. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ and Mayor Culpa. I forgot to press record when Carl and Helen were saying goodbye, so I'm saying goodbye from all of us. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>